Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at AirlinesConfidential.com. This is an ultra-low-cost podcast, and he's your ultra-low-cost CEO. It's Ben Baldanza, who used to run Spirit Airlines and now teaches about how airlines work. Well, low-cost or high-cost, airlines are a complicated business. So to really understand them, you have to work for one for many years or follow them your whole life. Like NPR's here and now transportation analyst, Seth Kaplan. Yeah, almost that long anyway. Pushing back from the gate, this is Airlines Confidential, the show where we share the secrets of the airline industry each week and debate all the crazy things that happen in the airline world. We're going to talk about how long a flight is too long. We'll listen to a real customer complaint against... Well, not exactly an airline this time, we'll explain. That's in our finer wine segment. First, though, let's prepare for takeoff with this week's news. Ben, airlines are hoping the upcoming Christmas and Hanukkah travel period is smoother than the Thanksgiving travel period was. Airlines canceled thousands of flights then because of bad weather in the northern half of the country, really from coast to coast. Countless people didn't make it to where they were going for Thanksgiving. Others didn't make it back home for work the following Monday. Now, first of all, Ben, I think there's maybe a little bit of a myth that some people have that things are more likely to go wrong during a busy holiday period. Uh, and, And correct me if I'm wrong, but more precisely, the truth isn't that things are more likely to go wrong. I mean, after all, flights are canceled for all the same reasons they're ever canceled, right? Bad weather, mechanical, what have you. But what is true is that when things do go wrong, the impact can be greater because there are so few seats on other flights to take care of the people stranded when a flight cancels. Is that is that an accurate assessment? That's the biggest issue. But I actually think there are two reasons that there's a tiny little more chance that something could go wrong in the holiday. Not because I think the gods are against airlines and always make the weather (laughs) bad at holidays. I don't mean that. But there's two things. First of all, airlines always have some amount of their fleet not flying because it's in scheduled maintenance or it's available if something goes wrong or something like that. And you certainly don't want a lot of your fleet not flying, but There's never the whole fleet is flying. In real peak travel times, airlines try to get as much of their fleet in the air as possible. So when something goes wrong, there's usually less of something else to replace it. And then there's the flights are very full, like you said. And when something goes wrong, there's just not a lot of seats. So it's the combination of not having a lot of seats and not having as much extra assets. And if you want to get a little cynical, people just tend to... Not me, Ben. In, I'm, in, not, in, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, all gumdrops <laughs> and lollipops. But, but somebody <laughs> else who wants to get cynical, what would, what would, what, what would their cynicism be well, found my in? Cynicism would be that employees of all types, and I'm, this is not an airline employee thing, but employees of all types 
tend to get more sick over the holidays if they have to work or things like that happen. <laughs> and so the likelihood that some people are going to call in sick or not make it to work when they otherwise would is a little bit higher in the holiday periods because there's so much pressure to be home and so much opportunity to be home. And sometimes that's what people do. So the combination of those things, fewer airplanes available, all the planes are full, and it's likely that the airports are running on a little bit thinner staff than they might like, make it a little tougher at holidays, not because the weather gods are against us. <laughs> yeah, I heard somebody outside the industry the other day talk about the what they called the 5th of July flu. This past year, the 4th of July, <laughs> Independence Day in the U.S. was on a Thursday, and apparently, uh, for some unknown reason, lots of people were sick on, on Friday, July 5th, uh, when conveniently it would be a way to, way to make a, a long weekend out of that. Uh, and, and yeah, that's true. When, when, when uh, we hear that, you know, the Sunday after Thanksgiving, or it used to be the day before Thanksgiving, Wednesday is the busiest uh, day of the year. Of course, a lot of that is, yeah, the flights are really full. But, but you mentioned something important, that there also are more seats in the sky because airlines are pressing every possible plane into service. So I think a, a, a sort of an underappreciated other reason aside from the full flights why it's it's harder to recover now one thing has changed in a big way during the past decade about how airlines handle all this uh, up until about 2010 even when airlines knew a storm was coming they pretty much just kept flying as long as it was safe to fly and then when the storm rolled in all the planes and people were just kind of stuck wherever they were then there were a few highly publicized incidents of, of what came to be known as tarmac delays, right? It wasn't just an industry term. People outside it knew there was this real bad situation at, at uh, JFK, New York. Uh, I remember it well. It was Valentine's Day weekend of 2007. JetBlue just kind of botched the preparation for a storm. Uh, you, you planes just all over the place, stuck away from gates for, for many hours, uh, you know, without food, water, in some cases, overflowing toilets, all that. Uh, I remember well, because I was there. <laughs> I was I, I actually coming on a Delta flight, but got stuck in the mess. I remember a Northwest Airlines flight. I think it was like nine hours. Northwest, of course, became part of Delta later uh, in, in, in awful conditions. And, and people began calling for something more. And so did politicians. And, and then it ended up in what's now known as the tarmac delay rule. That's right, Seth. And a few years after that event, the government, specifically the Department of Transportation, passed this rule, which basically said, if you pull away, if an airline pulls away from the gate, they have to take off within three hours. Otherwise, they will be charged $27,500 per passenger on the airplane. And that was uh, how they exactly came up with that number. I'm not sure, yep. but I'm sure somebody <laughs> knows that. Um, but obviously, when airlines looked at this, they recoiled, right? Nobody sells tickets for $27,500. So they were going to be uh, enormous expense. And so um, what airlines started doing was just canceling a lot of flights. And they canceled them long before three hours. Because think of this. If you're the pilot and it's now and you're sitting in the cockpit and it's two hours that you've been out on the tarmac, which is just the paved area outside the airport that's not the yeah. runway, right? Where the planes park. Yeah, otherwise known as the ramp. <laughs> yeah, yeah, otherwise known as the ramp. That's right. If you're sitting there at two hours and you don't know how long it's even going to take you to get back to the gate, but your company has trained you that, you know, we don't delay planes three hours, you're going to start 
asking to go back to the gate much earlier than three hours so that you're not caught just in the traffic at the airport. So it did a great job at virtually stopping long delays, but the effect of that was it created a lot more cancellations. <laughs> and as a result of that, uh, they have actually changed the rule recently. Yeah, and that's that's the it was Travel Weekly that first reported it. My friend Robert Silk over there broke the news that uh, that yeah, DOT finally sort of bought some of the airline arguments. Airlines back then fought against this. I mean, look, companies and all industries generally fight against regulation. They said it was going to be the end of the world for all kinds of different reasons. Uh, and, and and some of the worst fears really didn't come to pass. Uh, but that was one where finally now the government said, yeah, you know what? Uh, a couple things. First of all, uh, you don't have to actually open the door to give people an opportunity to leave. You know, as long as you tell people that if they want to get off in less than three hours and, and they really have that opportunity, uh, that, that technicality about that literally the door has to be open within three hours, uh, uh, seemingly going away. And um, the and, and what you described uh, about the, you know, it's two hours. Uh, at this point, if an airline is like about to take off and and a pilot is faced with, you know, do I, do I continue toward taking off, which is what everybody on the plane probably wants if it's you know two right. hours and 45 minutes or do i turn back to the gate because i can't be sure that i'm going to be wheels up in the air after three hours that too uh will be taken into account and the dot has always uh looked at, uh, at a case-by-case basis i mean there have been tarmac delays of more than three hours where airlines don't end up paying the fine because uh the government buys the idea that that there was just nothing that they can do it's interesting. I, I I do remember all those arguments back then. Uh, most airlines said it was it was there were going to be all kinds of unintended consequences. I remember Doug Parker, who, who runs American Airlines uh, back then at U.S. Airways, saying something a little different. He said, "Well, he said, you know what? We did this to ourselves." He said, "Look, that all actually happened. <laughs> those really bad situations, and we're stuck with this. And I, I wish we weren't, but you know, we're going to have to manage it." And airlines mostly did manage it for a few years, as best I could tell from the data that's out there, for a few years, there were far more flight cancellations for a few reasons, because of what you explained, and also, Ben, because you know, even with modern meteorology, a day or two out, you don't know exactly what's going to happen with a storm, right? So, so if you're trying to proactively cancel flights far in advance so that maybe people can find out about the cancellation before they even leave for the airport, you're going to end up canceling flights that maybe you didn't have to cancel in the end. And so uh, so for a while, that just sort of really held sway. I think as time went on, what the current situation mostly is that airlines do still proactively cancel more flights than they really probably have to. But then on the other hand... They leave their operation better positioned to restart after the storm. And so so once the storm passes, everything's kind of well staged to get going again. Is that more or less a fair assessment of, of sort of where we are today uh, and then hopefully just doing away with those other unintended consequences that the, that the, the rule tweak would do? Does that th- th- am I right about that? Yeah, you are right about that. And there's another sort of uh, almost subversive, if you want to say that, reason for those pre-cancels is if that if you cancel early enough, 
the DOT doesn't count that as a cancellation when they track up how many flights do you cancel. So there's actually an incentive to cancel early if you're going to cancel at all because the, the report card that the Department of Transportation puts out on you won't show that as a cancellation. Yeah, if you cancel way out, it's more If you cancel way out, that's right. It, it protects them from sort of the, the bad news of the cancellation in the metric report itself. So there's there's a sense of that. The change in the tarmac rule that you defined is is a good one, though. And specifically, you kind of said this, but I just want to make sure it's clear to listeners. Specifically now, the pilot has to have begun preparations to return to the gate by three hours now doesn't have to actually be at the gate and that's the big difference so the pilot can decide 10 minutes before we're still stuck here i know it's going to take me 30 minutes to get back to the gate because all this traffic but i've actually made the request they're they're marshalling me there as fast as they can so i'm covered under this new law and that's good that's a good change to the law Hey, speaking Ben, of, of gaming the data, there was one thing I thought of after our last show. We we talked about uh, on time performance and and uh, you know, just the idea that sure, schedule a flight with lots of extra pad in the block time, and 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 you'll always be on time. That sort of thing. One other thing that that I that I've noticed and that's kind of gotten me that re- sort of related to that. Airlines have different rules in terms of how long before the flight you have to be at the gate. And, and and it's interesting. This is something that's not regulated. And sometimes I wonder, you, know, you have these sweeping regulations about things that, you know, maybe aren't that big of a deal. And then this is one I think some people get caught up in. There are airlines now that say you got to be at the gate 15 minutes before departure. And I sort of feel like, uh, so on one hand, if I'm on the flight already, I'm like, well, this is great. If they're going to really button up and get get going and, and get to where we're going, who knows, a half hour or more early, that's great. Uh, but on the other hand, at what point is it like, well, okay, good for you that for once in your life you're on time, right? <laughs> From a customer perspective. But but the flight's scheduled for, you know, for a certain time. And if I'm stuck in a TSA line or or whatever else, uh, then then, you know, maybe there should be some, you know, is there some limit? Uh and it might not have to be a regulation, but but you know. What's next? 20 minutes, 25 minutes. At what point is it as a customer? Am, am I thinking it's like a doctor's office where I got to be on time, but they don't have to be, right? <laughs> and uh, That was just something else that kind of hit me that, that I think the airlines that do that give themselves a chance to sometimes get out really early. But who knows? There are a few people maybe stuck behind, uh, you know, to sort of compensate for what might not be always the best operation later. Well, anyone who's hosted a party... <laughs> or an event knows that if you say things start at 10, then um, some people come at 10, but a lot of people come between 10 and 1030. And so (laughs) I think airlines are worried that if they say the flight leaves at 10, that some people are going to think as long as I'm there by 10, it's okay. So they say some amount of time early, recognizing that you can't, judge how long the TSA line is going to be. Sure. You don't know how long it's going to find you, how long it's going to take you to find a place to park if you're driving or how long the walk to your gate is from where you end up parking or get dropped off or something like that. So for all of that, they say sometime early. Also, if there's an there's a situation where the flight is oversold or there's an equipment change such that all the people don't fit on the flight, we talked about that idea in one of our first episodes, it gives the gate time to sort of deal with that issue with everybody there and not, well, how many people do I really need to take off given that there may be some people who aren't even here yet. They can sort of kind of presume we got this 15 minute rule. So I've 
by 15 minutes, I know I've got that much time to deal with any situations at the gate. So I think it's all that. I don't know that there needs to be a regulation on that because every airline thinks about it differently, whether you're connecting, whether it's a point-to-point flight and such. But it's just good practice as a consumer. Show up a little bit before the flight's supposed to take (laughs) off because you're just better off in that case and you're going to have better options. Heck, maybe they've got an upgrade for you that you're going to lose if you're not there in time. Yeah. I mean, I have no problem personally with 10 minutes, right? Because I, I, I get that. Obviously, if, if, if I walk onto a, to a plane at 9.59 for that 10 o'clock flight, there's no way they can leave on time at 10 o'clock, right? Uh, it's sort of once it gets beyond that that I've noticed a few times. And I, I got caught up in one where I was like, you know, 12 or 13 minutes early, but it was oh, 15 minutes. And I was sort of like, well, at what point is it not a 10 o'clock flight anymore, right? <laughs> is, is it a 9.45 flight? Uh, and, and I think people, you know, can be confused because because different airlines obviously have the different rule. But no, you're right, Ben. Obviously, once you're cutting it that close, <laughs> it's uh, to a large degree kind of shame on you too, unless it was yeah, yeah. Com- something right. completely, uh, completely out of your control as a passenger. Meanwhile, Qantas's Project Sunrise, uh, these are those ultra, ultra long haul, regularly scheduled flights might not happen as soon as the airline initially hoped. Uh, That according to several media reports, first by the website airlineratings.com, the issues apparently have to do with getting pilots to agree to to operate those flights, which aren't covered by their current labor deal, plus how soon Boeing or Airbus might be able to produce the right plane. Now, you might remember a few years ago, Qantas operated, I should say a few months ago, Qantas operated nonstop flights from both New York and London to Sydney. Uh, now, these are special flights. It would love to be able to do that all the time. Uh, those are probably the two busy, biggest travel markets in the world that don't currently have any scheduled service. So, Ben, if Qantas could do it then, why doesn't it fly those routes all the time? Well, they flew them with 787-900s at the time with very few people on them. Uh, one of them had just 40 out of 234 seats on the plane filled and not a lot of luggage. So, Whether they can do them with a full plane and full luggage load is still not sure. And there's a little better technology. Planes carry more fuel. Engines are more efficient. I think it's more of a when, not an if it'll ever happen. When the plane really can comfortably, sustainably make the route with a full passenger load 365 days a year, that's when routes like New York, Sydney and London, Sydney are going to be in the, uh, in the schedule for good. I think that Qantas or other people are going to fly those kind of routes. There are other very long haul routes that have been identified by planners and things like that, that should have a large enough demand to make the route work, but they're not flown yet. And I think in most of those cases, it's a matter of having a plane that is the right size, that can carry enough people and enough bags, but not be bigger than it needs to be, but also deal with winds that change. And uh, on flights that long, you just need so much redundancy and so much uh, ability to, if something goes wrong, what are you going to do? And it just becomes a harder engineering problem to solve, frankly. It's so really an engineering problem and also an economic problem. You can obviously fly it because they did, but but, but you're not going to make very much money flying with uh, with uh, a nearly empty airplane. Uh, London and Sydney are, are 10,573 miles apart. Uh, New York, Sydney, 9,950 miles, so just a shade less than 10,000. Uh, for perspective, the longest currently scheduled flight 
is 9,484 miles, so almost 9,500 on Singapore Airlines uh, from from Newark to Singapore, New York, Newark to Singapore. Uh, the, that according to DO by Sirium schedule data. Uh, ben, I've been on that flight. Uh, back the first time that they operated it, they didn't do it for a bunch of years and, and uh, then it came back just a couple of years ago. Uh, long flight, almost 18 hours. Auckland, Doha on uh, Qatar Airways is about 9,000 miles. Then London, Perth on Qantas, Brisbane, Chicago, also on Qantas, a new one, and Auckland, Dubai on Emirates, all kind of bunched together in that order, just less than 9,000 miles each. Ben, is there anything except technology and and economics that comes into play here? What I'm wondering in particular is whether there's such a thing as a flight that's so long that people just don't want to be on it, that they'd simply rather (laughs) connect somewhere and, and stretch their legs. Well, I don't think so. Dude. I don't think so because if you think about the distances of all these flights that you've talked about and even New York, Sydney, Sydney and London, Sydney, they're not that different, right? I mean, they're maybe a half an hour, 45 minutes longer for the longest of these versus yeah. the shortest of all these really long flights. And so I can't imagine if somebody's comfortable flying um, London, Perth, <laughs> that they wouldn't fly London, Sydney. Right? Once they're over Perth, they're like, get me all the way there. Yeah, no. no I, think, I think it's got to be a combination of two things. I think it's got to be mostly an engineering issue, meaning is the, is the plane capable of carrying full crew, full passenger, full baggage load, and probably some cargo on routes that long, right? And, and things. And is the market itself... Does the market itself have enough demand to make a nonstop flight work? Like there's no flight, for example, from London to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. But there's plenty of Vietnamese in California and there's plenty of demand for service between the West Coast of the U.S. and Vietnam for business, leisure, all kinds of things. But that route isn't flown yet. You said you said London. Do you mean Los Angeles when you said? California? I, oh, I said yeah, London. I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yes, I meant Los Angeles. Yeah. I'm very sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. no, Los Angeles, and and yet, um, and yet that route's not flown yet. Yeah. And so, is will Vietnam Airlines do that? Will United or Delta do that at some point? But I'd be willing to bet that at some point there's going to be a nonstop flight from Los Angeles to Ho Chi Minh City. It might even be called Saigon again at that point. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and that's where the economics come in, right? That as, as aircraft technology improves, uh, as it just becomes cheaper to carry people because airplanes are more efficient and all the rest of it, then things become viable economically that, that weren't in, in the past. Uh, I, I know for me, speaking of the, the length of the flight, I mentioned I was on Newark, Singapore. Uh, the, so the, the cheapest least luxurious class of service that they had at the time. They called it executive economy. So it's kind of like a premium economy, more or less. And it was kind of had a lot of recline, a decent amount of leg room. It was quite a bit nicer than regular economy. And because of that, I, I really don't remember feeling uncomfortable. I, I remember sort of having chills, uh, getting almost teary-eyed as we were on final approach into Singapore, <laughs> realizing, wow, that is that is the longest at the time anyway. That I, we have just I've been in the air for as long as you can possibly be in the air on a, uh, a, you know, on a scheduled airline flight. And uh, you really just sort of it was just one of those moments where I really appreciated the the uh, the miracle of of flight. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think the longest 
flight that I ever felt was <laughs> Newark to Hong Kong in, in a true economy seat. And it was you know, continental at the time I flew, you know, now United. That was 14 hours as opposed to whatever, 17, 18 hours for the other one. But but because that was just in a standard economy seat, that was the, the what I think of flights in my life where I thought, like, when am I ever going to get there? It was that. Or it was maybe a middle seat from Paris to Atlanta one time. A much shorter flight, but like a middle yeah. seat in the middle part of a 747. So there are obviously lots of things, yeah, that 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 go into passenger comfort, not just not just the length of the flight itself. Well, 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 Seth, rather than uh, other than just um, lengthening this podcast, there's two actually more thoughts about this that I think are worth talking about. One is for me, and I don't know if you would agree with this, a 15 hour flight, I think is actually easier than an eight hour flight. And the reason I say that is an eight hour flight, there's just not enough time with takeoff and landing and having to have your seat up and everything like that. If you want to eat and sleep and things like that, there's just not enough on a 15 hour flight or longer. Like these ones we're talking about, you can, you can eat a meal. You can watch, you can take advantage of the great in-flight entertainment. These airlines have with movies, podcasts, shows, all kinds of stuff. And Get a, a full night's sleep, really. Maybe you don't sleep as well in an airline seat as you would in your bed at home, but you can get a lot of hours in. And in some ways, the whole um, jet lag issue is easier to deal with on a long flight, on a really long flight, than on just a mid-length long flight. I, I totally agree. And there, too, again, it, it's sort of the, the comfort plays a role. I know at the, t- the times when I've been really comfortable on a flight, you know, maybe in a, in a nice class of service or what have you. And if I'm only going, let's say, to Europe from the U.S., yeah, I'm almost sort of nervous when we take off because I'm like, oh, my God, I, I, I have this comfortable seat. I want to sleep, but I also want to watch all this stuff on, on TV, <laughs> as you said, and all the rest of it. Whereas when you have 12 or 14 hours, you can you can kind of do all of it. On the other hand, in that middle seat, that's what I'm thinking. Well, I'm probably not going to sleep too well anyway. <laughs> probably doesn't matter how good the in-flight entertainment is. Just, uh, just, just, uh, just get me there. But no, I, absolutely. If you're trying to get a good night's sleep and a meal and all the rest of it, then a, then a, uh, an eight-hour flight is 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 too little from that perspective. No question. That's right. The the other thing is we're not going to be having this conversation about any longer flights because the Earth is only so big, right? A friend of ours is on her way back to Washington right now from Singapore. And I asked my wife who was texting her because she had Wi-Fi on board, (laughs) saying like, um, where does she fly? Is is she on the Singapore Newark flight? That's what I specifically asked. Is she on the longest flight in the world? And she wrote back and she said, no, I'm on Qatar Airways and I connected in Doha and I'm coming to Washington. And I realized, oh yeah, you could go that way too, right? I just, my intuition was she's going to fly across the Pacific, but she didn't. She flew through the Middle East and that was just as reasonable a way for her to go. And so it, the length of flights we're talking about here, 10,000 miles or maybe just a tad longer than that, it's never going to be longer than right, that. Right, because by definition, it could it could never be longer. I mean, the two farthest po- points on Earth would be, what, 13,000 miles apart because the circumference of the Earth thing is 26,000 miles. Uh, so, Yeah, but that's going to be iceberg. That, well, well, exa- exactly. <laughs> so, so, so in terms of places where people, where people actually live, yeah, it's not one of those things where is this just going to go on forever because it, because by definition, it, it couldn't. Well, now at Cruise Altitude here on Airlines Confidential, it's time to take a question from one of your fellow listeners. It's that plus a complaint during fine or wine. You can get up and move about the cabin if you need to. But if you're in your seat, keep your seatbelt fastened, just like we do up here in the Airlines Confidential cockpit. 
Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com. With Ben Baldanza, I'm Seth Kaplan. This is Airlines Confidential. Fine or whine is next. But first, time for this week's question. And by the way, if you've called in or or sent in questions and and we don't get to them this week, don't think that we're not going to get to it. We've gotten some great questions. I actually can't wait till next episode. We've got a couple that that are are really good that I'm looking forward to to getting to. So uh, so hang in there. Uh, This week's question is from Earl in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. Earl writes, other than the food, what is the most dangerous thing about commercial flying? Now, I actually don't know, Ben, whether 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 it's true that the food is uh, is the most important part, uh, but the most dangerous part, rather. Although you certainly do read these stories once in a while about issues with airline catering. I think it's just one of those things where when millions and millions of people do anything, something eventually goes wrong. The context, of course, flying we all know is is by and large the safest way to get around, far safer than even other rather safe modes of transportation. Rail, for example, rail is very safe. It's much safer than driving, but it's not as safe as flying. So that said, of course, still there's some flying that's safer than other flying, some phases of flight that's, uh, that's safer than others. So so Ben, Earl's question, other than the food, what's the most dangerous thing about commercial flying? Well, because of, his, uh, because of Earl's humor, I want to say, well, maybe the person sitting next to you. <laughs> but that's not but that's not really the right answer either. <laughs> but um I mean he's right that things can go wrong, right? You're these are big pieces of equipment flying at very fast speeds of you know above the earth and so clearly something can go wrong. But if you look at what really happens and statistically the the fact that you have to get to the airport is the most unsafe part of your flight yeah, because yeah. there's no way to get to the airport more safely than the flight is statistically going to be. And that's the real answer to the question. Now, of course, if you say, well, only related to the phase of flight itself, what's the most dangerous thing, then the obvious answer there, Seth, is when the plane is close to the ground. Because so that means in Mostly when the plane's going to land, that's when things can go wrong. Either winds get picked up or the plane could run out of yeah. fuel. That's happened on some airplanes at some time uh, at, at times that, you know, usually pilot error or lack of good communication when, yeah. when that's happened. Um, if it's not at the landing, it's just after takeoff. And, you know, the recent crashes we've had on the 737, as you know, we're both at takeoff. And that's again, because the plane is so close to the ground, the pilots don't have time to recover whatever unusual thing is happening before you know they hit the ground. And so when the plane is at altitude, the likelihood that something's going to go wrong is just very small. Of course, if there's you know a catastrophic event on the airplane, then that can happen and there've been instances of that. But statistically, the takeoff, if you get through the takeoff, and then the next the next thing you should worry about if you're a worrier is going to be at the landing and not before that. But the real thing you should be concerned about is how do I get to the airport and how do I get home from the airport? Because that's where, at least statistically, you're likely to have a bigger problem. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a piece for the points guy several months ago after there had been a helicopter uh, crash. And, and they asked me to just kind of standardize some data and try to figure out the relative safety of all these different modes of transportation. If you want to find it, you Google our helicopters safe and look at the, 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 it's probably the first or second item that comes up from the points guy. But, uh, but yeah, basically 
you know, commercial flying was far safer than anything else. Then, then you had rail, passenger rail, and sort of everything else that you could imagine in between public transportation, all the rest of it. And, and then driving was far, far, far more dan- dangerous. And we, you know, standardized it per passenger miles traveled and all that, far more dangerous than anything else. Now, private. Uh, flight is considerably more dangerous than than commercial flight, but even there, of course, that's just an average. Uh, probably not the same rate of accidents for you know somebody flying in only visual conditions who's not instrument rated and flies into a storm, flies once a year, as you know, a commercial pilot taking uh, his or her own airplane out for the weekend. But yeah, commercial flying it, it just just far more safe than anything else. Well, do you have a question for us? You can call us at 305-379-7429 and record a question for us anytime during the week. Again, 305-379-7429. You can email us, questions at airlinesconfidential.com, questions plural at airlinesplural.confidential.com, uh, or jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website. You'll see a form there to submit your question. Well, Beginning our initial descent, Ben, on today's show, it's time for Fine or Whine. We listen to an actual customer complaint, and then we talk about whether the complaint is fine or if they're just whining. Ben, you have a complaint. Of course, Seth. This one is from Tufan. Tufan writes, rented a car through Expedia in Nice, France, also took out CDW insurance for $110. That was smart, Tufan. Enterprise (laughs) rental company had no knowledge that any insurance was taken out, so I had to pay $360 for insurance. Requested the $360 back from Expedia, and I guess they thought refunding the original $110 was more than enough for the mistake they made. So I'm out $250 because someone in the Expedia car rental department did not do their job as they should have. Okay, so Tufan shows up at the car rental counter clearly, and they say, "Okay, you need the, this insurance," uh, and the three hundred sixty dollars, and Tufan needs the car, and then pays and figures, "Okay, Expedia will give that back to me." Expedia instead gives Tufan just the hundred ten dollars that that Tufan had paid Expedia. Now, insurance is is big business for for all of these companies and, and I think that's that's an important piece of context here now of course they're not presumably you know trying to uh, uh, rip people off I mean they're <laughs> they're trying to get you to buy insurance once but they earn far higher margins on insurance than they do on all the rest of it right so like that hundred ten dollars that Expedia charged for the insurance was probably far more profitable for Expedia it might have had who knows a 30 or 40 percent commission from that far more profitable than the car rental itself, where it probably earned far, far, far less than that from from enterprise. So, so this is why they sell the insurance. But yeah, what, what, I mean, this... What do you say here, Ben? Don't tell me that you're going to side with <laughs> side with the, uh, the the companies in this one. Yes, they should have given them nothing back. No, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a joke. Charge them double, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, he's exactly right. This is this is a bit of uh, avaricious behavior by Expedia. I think it's really unfortunate too because Expedia is a good company, but is as. Consumers should know when you rent a car outside the U.S., you are often required to have insurance. In the U.S., they say you want the insurance. You can just say no, thinking that your credit card covers it or you're just a safe driver and they don't say anything. You can't get away with that when you go to Nice, France or somewhere else to rent a car. So I understand that he had to have insurance, but he had bought insurance. 
And if he was able to prove that he had the insurance, which it looks like he could, and they were covered, what they were really doing by only refunding his 110 was saying that we want to get the full margin from the insurance we would have sold you. Now, I will make one caveat here. It's possible, because I haven't seen his paperwork, that the paperwork he signed says you will agree to buy insurance from us, not just you will agree to have insurance. And if that's the case, then I could see why Expedia would go back and say, well, I'll reimburse you for any insurance you bought because you had agreed to buy my insurance. But I don't know that they said that. And so only knowing what Tufan told us, I'd say he's right. Expedia should pay him back the full $250 that he had to pay for the, that they made him pay for the insurance. Actually, $360, I mean, that he had to pay. For right. You should just have to pay the lesser because he thought that yeah. when he was, yeah, exactly, uh, without knowing anything more. Yeah, that that makes perfect sense. And that is one of the challenges of of, of travel is, is there are so many players and, and the relationships between all of them can be tricky. But I agree. Uh, it, it should have been up to Expedia then to go fight it out with with Enterprise. You know, if they're sort of refunding more than they felt they, they should have had to, uh, go fight it out with them. But the consumer uh, shouldn't shouldn't be the one bearing that responsibility well here we are ben on final approach uh, that does it for airlines confidential this week please fasten your seatbelts and ensure your seatbacks and tray tables are in their upright and locked positions and remember we'd love to hear your questions at 305-379-7429 or email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com you can jump on the airlinesconfidential.com website from the airlines confidential studios i'm seth kaplan And I'm Ben Baldanza getting my podcast now on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and all kinds of places podcasts are on, just like you can get Airlines Confidential. (laughs) Talk to you soon. Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Seth Kaplan is produced in conjunction with Mass Media, a Google partner, providing businesses with traditional and digital advertising strategy and implementation. MassMedia.net. Sponsorship info for the Airlines Confidential podcast is available at airlinesconfidential.com.